Hey, y'all. Welcome to RUF. Uh, my name is Simon Stokes. If I haven't met you at some point. I would love to meet you. And um, if you haven't, I guess we're still passing the, the box around at this point. But uh, again, if you uh, need a little more time with that, that's fine. Um, we'll move it towards the back here next to the t-shirts. If somebody could do that, that'd be awesome. You just drop it in at the end. Um, but I really, really, really love Murphy. I, I do not like Hamilton. I don't like Gardner. I don't like Carol as much. I'm a Murphy man, and I want to stay in Murphy. <laughs> um, but thanks for being here tonight, braving the weather, um, braving, braving the, uh, the heartache of last night's loss and getting out of bed and, and being able to come outside and enjoy life with people again. It's so good. <laughs> um, but yeah, this semester we're going through the book of Acts, and uh, we're exploring this book, and we're seeing the way that God's mission after Jesus' life and death and resurrection, are here to expand His good and glorious kingdom in the world and across the whole of the earth. And that's not just political boundaries, but that's tribes and tongues and nations and races. And we really get in that tonight. Um, we're going to talk a lot about race. Um, we're going to talk about a, a lot about re- reconciliation tonight. That's God's plan. That's God's desire for us. And so I'm excited to look at this with you all tonight. And uh, get into Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. So this is Acts chapter 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rest on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia... Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Let me pray for us and we get started. Father, I do pray that you would be with us tonight in your spirit. Lord, that he would be the spirit of reconciliation and that he would reconcile us to you and to one another um, and reconcile us to the world. Um, Lord, we love that you love this place. We love this place too. Lord, teach us to love this place and that you love it and to know your love in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. There's a comedian named Emo Phillips and he tells a joke that goes something like this. If I can get this right. (laughs) A guy comes across another guy, and the second guy is about to jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. And the first guy says, wait, stop. Don't you believe in God? And the guy who's about to jump says, yeah, I do. And the guy says, me too. Are you a Christian? And he says, yeah, I am. He says, me too. Protestant or Catholic? And he says, Protestant. Me too. What denomination? Presbyterian. Me too. Northern Presbyterian or Southern Presbyterian? Uh, Northern Presbyterian. Me too. 
Northern Conservative Presbyterian or Northern Liberal Presbyterian? Northern Conservative Presbyterian. Oh, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Presbyterian or Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian? Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian. <laughs> me too. Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian Eastern Region? Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian Great Lakes Region. <laughs> me too. Weird. Uh, are you Northern Conservative Reformed <laughs> Presbyterian Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? Well, I'm actually Northern Conservative Reformed Presbyterian Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the guy who came across him said, Die, heretic! And pushed him <laughs> off the bridge. <laughs> I know. It's a joke. It's okay. <laughs> I tell that joke because I think that the problem that a lot of people have with Christianity or religion is they really feel like religion is super divisive. Like the more religious you get, the more you don't like other people, or the more divided the world becomes. They say it doesn't unite people, that it's not necessary to solve maybe the burning problems of the world. It divides us, and we want to be united. And to that, I would say that if you look at this text, and you look at the flow of Scripture, and what God is really about in the Bible, that actually... There's a lot of resources for unity and a lot of what could compel us to be together and solve really hard burning problems together if we just look and we listen to what the Spirit has to say through the story of the gospel. So tonight, I want to say that we're going to look at this and we're going to ask three questions of it. We're going to ask who is being reconciled, we're going to ask how are they being reconciled, And we're going to ask, why is this the best way to be reconciled? So who, how, and why? That's what we're going to ask tonight. So one, who's being reconciled? Look at verse 5 here. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So all these devout Jews are gathered for this Jewish festival of Pentecost, and they've come from every corner of the world, from Eastern Europe, from Asia, from Africa, all these different cultures, nationalities. But what's the problem? Like, they can't talk to one another. And I don't know if you've ever had this problem, but it's hard to be in a relationship with someone that you can't talk to. And so what God does is He sends the Holy Spirit so they can speak to one another and start to hear the gospel and be joined together in a community that's diverse with different nationalities, ethnicities, different regions and customs. God here is bringing from disunity to unity. He's knocking down barriers that exist between people. And the reason that's so is because the gospel is a cross-cultural gospel. It's good news for every race. And every nation. It's good news for poor people and rich people, for happy people and sad people. Because Jesus is a cross-cultural savior. And so when he sends his people on a mission, he sends them on a cross-cultural mission. And so you see right from the get-go that this is a book about what God's plan has been all along. The part one was Jesus coming into the world, being born, dying on a cross so that we can be reconciled to him. And part two is what? It's the church. It's God gathering all these reconciled people together 
to live life in a reconciled way. So you see, Pentecost is the birth of the Christian church, which is a people not united by a common tongue or race or nationality, but united by one thing, which is Jesus. It's Jesus. Christianity is the most diverse religion in the world because it's all these different peoples and nationalities coming together for one reason. God's work through Jesus. And this is just the whole shape of the biblical story of different people coming under God's reign and His work. If you go into the Old Testament, He takes Rahab the prostitute and Ruth, the non-Jewish Moabite widow, and He makes them central characters in redemption. Those are Jesus' ancestors. The Bible takes the story of Israel, which is this former slave nation, a nobody, a nothing. And it's so immoral and so foolish that it gets exiled from its own land. It takes that nation and says, this is the key to understanding history. You look at the Bible and you only really start to understand it when you understand Jesus and his heart for reconciliation. That he is God who becomes oppressed. This ultimate entitled insider who becomes this ultimate cast off outsider. That Jesus' life is marked by oppression. His death is a parody of justice. It ends in shame and rejection. Why? So that he can reconcile people to himself who are totally different, totally alien, totally other. Not only that, but if you think about it, Jesus is the ultimate minority. He's both God and man. That's a completely unique being. There's no one else like him in existence. Part of the scandal of the cross is that he would take this role willingly. If God is reconciled to alienated humanity through the suffering and death of a crucified religious minority on a hill in a garbage dump outside of a third-rate city on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, then he must have a table at the seat for people who are different, who are other, who are outsiders. That he himself becomes an outsider to seek out outsiders. That if you read the Bible consistently, you've got to see that the emphasis that it places on telling the story of God is drawing outsiders and people who are different to himself. And so when we read this story, we as a Christian community have to find ourselves looking for ways to bring these same sort of marginalized or people who are just different into our ranks. The narrative of the Christian religion doesn't really allow any other options. And I just have to say as a pastor that this has clearly not always been the case. The church is broken. It's been used as a tool of oppression and racism and misogyny. It's silenced voices that it should have listened to, often in violent ways. But one of the great slogans of the Reformation was sola reforma, always reforming. It was this recognition that on this side of heaven, God's people are just not what they should be. And so we always have to be willing to repent and believe the gospel anew. And so it's through this gospel that God's people imagine a new situation of what's possible. That we can go out and pursue people who are not like us, who are different from us, be reconciled to one another. It moves us towards what's just. Notice here that at the end of Jesus' ministry, when he goes and ascends into heaven, he hands off This incredibly important ministry of reconciling the world to himself, to the apostles. But he's never written a word. Like, not physically. right? Like, the New Testament is written by the apostles through the Spirit of God, but Jesus doesn't write one letter of that. What's his bona fide word to the rest of the world that this is legit? It's the church. 
It's God's people loving one another and welcoming people who are different into their ranks. He, on the night that he's betrayed, he looks at his disciples, the seed of community from which the rest of the church is going to spring. And he says, by this, all my people will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. That the way that people who are on the outside will know that God is at work in us is if we love each other and they will come in and we will love them and care for them and pursue them because God had a heart for us. Because God seeks the other and so we should seek the other too. And we should be a window of that, a picture of reconciliation to the rest of the world. Um, I came home last, I guess two Thursday nights now, ago, and Katie gave me the happy news that she was having a girls' night, which means I had to get out of the house. And lo and behold, it was uh, the first night of Black Panther playing in theaters, and it was awesome. It was so awesome. And I'm not, no spoilers here, but I do want to say, like, sitting in that theater and watching the way that they brought the land of Wakanda, like, to life. And if you don't know anything about the movie, it's, it's this civilization that's totally African that's been hidden for thousands of years. It's super cool, really advanced. I mean, it was amazing, like, really cool sci-fi, Afrofuturism. It was so awesome. But what was also beautiful about it was here's an African society where the sin of slavery and racism has never entered in where African culture and African people are dignified and shown to be marvelous without being defined by injustice, but by just seeing how amazing and beautiful their culture was and how free they were. And you watch that movie and you just want to, you think, I want to go to there. Like, I want to be in Wakanda. I want to shop on the streets of Wakanda. I want to ride those cool, like, silver bullet trains that they've got going on. I want to live in a rustic village and raise fighting rhinoceroses. It's awesome. <laughs> like the sight of that place answers longings that I never even knew that I had. That I want to go to that place. God gives His church. Because when we are reconciled to one another, people will know that God has been amongst us. They will see a new community, a new humanity. People on the outside will say, I want to go there. Sign me up. You're answering longings that I never knew that I had. Because this is the way people were made to be. And God is rolling back the sin of disunity and racism and bringing people together. So, how then are we supposed to be reconciled? How are we supposed to be reconciled? Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. God's mission has two movements in your life. The first movement is that it starts in our own hearts where the Spirit enters in. Without the work of this Holy Spirit, we're enemies of God, strangers to Him, aliens. We rebel from God and run away from Him through all kinds of things. We can be partying, can be throwing ourselves into academics, social causes, into other relationships. Or it can be, we can rebel against God through, rebel, through religious things. Where we do a bunch of religious stuff and try to control Him or manipulate Him. That's still rebellion. By nature, we don't love the things that God loves. We don't do the things that God does. That's usually our criteria for, to be a friend for someone. They have to love the things we love and do the things we do. Thankfully, that is not God's criteria for us to call us friends. For us to be God's friends, He has to enter into our lives through the Holy Spirit and give us what Jesus has and bring us into His life and into His mission. 
But when he does that, the second movement of God's work is to take us outside of ourselves so that we love people who are not like us. All races, all classes, other personality types. The sign that God has been at work in your life in this way is you start to enter into other people's brokenness and you start to listen to them. Like if you want to be really missional, like enter into somebody's brokenness and just listen. Just listen to them. Look, you've got to read books from other cultures. You've got to listen to popular culture that they may be producing. Have a dialogue with people who are not like us. Like, we don't live in a time and a place where people seem to be able to disagree and still be in relationship. That's just hard for us right now as a culture. We need to be able to listen, parse through what we agree and disagree about, and then stay engaged in relationship. Christians should be the people who lead that. Because God has reconciled himself to us. We have to look at another person and say, why, why do you think this way? How do you see the world? What am I not understanding? What's your experience like in this? I want to listen to that. Not give you advice. Not tell you what to do, but to listen and enter in with you. This past August, I was... Uh, reading a New York Times op-ed, and it was, everything was kind of in the wake of the Charlottesville white supremacist marches through UVA. Just a super ugly time. And they had an op-ed in the New York Times where this African-American father had written asking whether or not his son could be friends with other white kids. And he was just mulling over what the current racial and political climate was and asking this. And, you know... I don't know if you know this about the internet, but there's some mean things that get said on there sometimes. And there was, that was definitely being said about this guy, but I read another, another piece written by a more conservative white blogger who was, um, who was also a dad. And he was saying, wait, 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 like, we just need to listen to what this guy has to say. Like, I don't have to agree with everything he has to say, but I want to know why he thinks the way he thinks. Why he sees this... And sees America in such a way that like he his son can't be friends with like my son. Like I need to listen to his heart as a father because I'm a father. And hear how scared he is for his son. Like Christians should enter into that kind of dialogue and say, I don't have to agree with everything you say, but I do want to listen to you and know why is your experience the way that it is. If breaking down walls is a natural application of the gospel and the kingdom of God. We just have to ask ourselves really honestly how well we're getting the gospel if we're not breaking down those walls. Like this is more than a spiritualized take on, you know, me and my roommate, we get mad at each other sometimes. and I need to forgive them because the gospel says I need to break down those walls. Like that's true. That's true. But every instance of breaking down walls in the New Testament is cultural. It's cultural. And y'all, this is so helpful in our current cultural moment Because America is just moving out from the myth that, you know, we were ever really a Christian nation. And so white Christians like me no longer have the bane of being kind of the culturally dominant force anymore. And we need to listen to our African American brothers and sisters who've not been dominant ever culturally. But who've read the Bible and followed Jesus in ways that, like, I just don't know about. But I need to learn about. We need to enter into relationship with them and say, what is it like to grow up with the story that your ancestors were dragged to this country as slaves and then when slavery ended, they were oppressed and pushed aside as though it was their fault that they were here? 
Like we've got to listen to that. What is it like for you to have that experience and still to trust Jesus and believe that he's good even in your suffering? Because I've got nothing on that. Like I need to sit at someone's feet and learn from them. Because I'm just not going to be culturally dominant anymore. Like praise God. Like that was, that was a shackle that was put around us. Like, but we're exiles and strangers here. And we need to learn from other people who have experienced that firsthand. Look, you don't have to agree with everything that a protester says or stands for, but you should listen to it. God doesn't agree with everything that you say, but he listens to that. If the gospel is like this rocket that blasts up into the heavens, then cross-cultural engagement is the space to which that rocket goes. And if you want to follow the gospel, you've got to follow it into this kind of cross-cultural engagement. I mean, think about the issue of Silent Sam on our campus. Like, how do Christians help with that? I mean, it's something that people churn on and protest and agonize over. And yet, this is just one guy's opinion. You can disagree with me on this. But what if instead of trying to just rip the statue out in rage or ignoring it as though a Confederate monument didn't bother our African-American brothers and sisters, what if we wrote to our chancellor and said, can we solve this peacefully as a community And we just kept writing that and writing that and writing that until they actually did something about it. Look, this is just one guy, but I mean, my personal preference would be to take down the statue and replace it with a war memorial to every student who's ever fought and died for this country. Like, that would be both patriotic and inclusive. But maybe there's a better solution out there than the one I've come up with. How do we know until we try? Look, there's a place here for Christians to engage and listen and move in in a missional way that actually blesses this place, that actually reconciles people. Look, regardless, you need to understand that through the work of the Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, then you're a citizen of heaven. But being a citizen of heaven should make you a better citizen of America and a better citizen of this campus. That that's the way it's supposed to work anyway. Because the work of the Holy Spirit and the narrative of the gospel really doesn't leave us a lot of other options. Like when you look at this, you should see that God is breaking in and bringing people together and reconciling them in a really, really powerful way. So finally, why is this the best way to be reconciled? Why is this the best way to be reconciled? Like through the gospel and the Holy Spirit. I can imagine someone saying, you know, Simon, you think this just because you're like a pastor. Like, you're a paid religious person whose job it is to convince me of this stuff. That's what religious people always do. But we don't need religious people to be reconciled to one another. Religion usually creates more problems than it solves. Here's why I think this is the best way forward. Because our culture has appropriated the idea that all kinds of different cultures and races coming together in harmony is a good thing. And I think that's a beautiful goal. I mean, I think it got that goal from Christianity, whose end goal is that all tribes and tongues and nations and races would be together under God's good reign. But the problem with our culture is it's gotten this goal, but it hasn't given us the means to achieve that goal. It's just assumed that as people got richer and more educated and less religious, that our problems would go away. But I'll tell you, nothing for me blew that out of the water more than the images from UVA last August where you had these white, non-religious, college-educated men in khakis holding tiki torches and marching through the campus of UVA, kind of proclaiming racist propaganda as though it was Germany, 1938. 
I don't know about you, but when I saw those pictures, I thought if that can happen there, that can happen anywhere. Like that could happen at UNC. And just telling people that they need to be inclusive, otherwise someone's going to drop a shame bomb on them, is just not enough. Like that's not working. You've got to tell them how and why. Because here's the deal, y'all. That no matter how you run from it, you'll always long for meaning, identity, and community. Everybody longs to be a part of a group and to find their identity and their meaning around that group. But the problem is that you have all these other groups too. Other races, other nations, other tribes, other languages. And just saying to people, go and live in peace with all these different people is not enough. I mean, as a pastor, I want to acknowledge that religion, generally speaking, can be incredibly divisive. It can cause incredible damage. It can create this slippery slope in someone's heart that can even lead to oppression and violence. If you tell a group of people, you have the truth and you're saved by doing that truth... That's got to lead towards a feeling of superiority to people who aren't doing it. And you start to stereotype those people, dehumanize those people, feel like they deserve whatever's coming to them. If you take moralistic religion into your life and say you are saved by doing all this religious stuff, of course you'll feel superior to all those terrible secular people or the people who are doing the wrong religious stuff. If you take secularism into your life, You'll feel superior to all these stupid, naive, religious moralists. But you'll still look for an identity or a group that you can divine yourself by or even against someone else. But what gospel Christianity says is in the promise of the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that you actually start to believe that God, this ultimate other, He is holy and we are not. He is the creator, we are the creation. He comes and He bridges the gap. He reconciles Himself to us by dying on a cross in our place. He has all this power. He doesn't use it to oppress or push us aside. He uses it to go to the bottom. He uses it to take our sin and die for us. And if you take that person and their life and that story into the center of who you are, you will be humbled. If you are reconciled to Him, you don't have a lot of other options but to be reconciled to people who are not like you. Because compared to him, every other difference in humanity is just skin deep. Like God is the ultimate other. He seeks us out. If the gospel is true, then it gives you everything you need to take the next step and love somebody who looks different and acts different from you. And so this just begs the question, like, who do you need to be reconciled to? Who do you need to be reconciled to? Is it somebody in your hall? Is it your roommate? Is it somebody you grew up with and you haven't talked to in years? Is it God? Like, who do you need to be reconciled to? Do you have questions about Christianity? Like, I'm happy to talk about those things. I would love to talk about those things. I'm a paid religious professional. Remember? I want to talk to you about that stuff. Are you utterly convinced of the truth of Christianity, but you still can't stand your neighbors? Like, get on your knees and repent to the one who's reconciled himself to you. That if Jesus Christ reconciled you to himself when you were his enemy, at the cost of his own life, like, he gives you the resources you need to be reconciled to your enemies, to people who've hurt one another, 
to communities that have just centuries of bad blood and violence, you're going to need something a little bit more higher power than just do this. What you're going to need is God hung upon a cross for your sins, who's loved you and prays for you and prays for you still, who whispers in your heart, go and love those people. I think that's why you need this. And so I want to end with this. I don't know if you saw all the coverage of the Larry Nassar trial a few months back. As a dad of little girls, I just want to say, like, that tore me up. I could only, like, read and listen to a little bit of that. I just wanted to, like, hold them tight and protect them from everything evil in the world when I saw that. Because here was this trusted doctor in Michigan State who was supposed to be helping young female gymnasts get better. And this guy is sexually abusing them. And it was horrible. And the authorities failed all these young women. And I just know as I say that, that's some of your stories too. I want to say that that is evil. I'm sorry. And if you want to talk about that, I'm happy to talk about it as well. But at this trial, towards the end of it, they had a chance for Larry's victims to come and give a final victim impact statement and say one final thing to their abuser. And one of the women who came up, her name was Rachel Denhollander, and she'd been one of the first women to blow the whistle on Larry, and she'd been ignored and kind of pushed aside for years. But she's a Christian, and she gets to come up and speak to this guy who'd, been, who'd abused her for years and really wrecked her life in a lot of ways. And this is what she said. It's part of what she said anyway. Her, you should read her whole thing. It's amazing. But she said this, that, Larry, the Bible says there, there is a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend it to you as well. Y'all, I read that. I just have to ask, what would give someone who is a survivor of sexual abuse from their doctor, a man that she had trusted, who had wrecked her life for years, what would give someone like that the sort of strength and character and nobility to both confront that man in the most severe terms possible and offer at the same time forgiveness. That if he would, if he would face up to his sins and the evil that he'd visited upon her and so many other young women, that if he would, he could be reconciled to Christ and that he could be her brother. I want to suggest to you that only the gospel applied through the spirit of reconciliation can do that. That God loves to reconcile people who are enemies. That he's reconciled himself to us who are his enemies. That this is the nature of our God and King. And if we would follow him, this must be our nature too. That is not to blot out evil or blot out injustice. That is to say that God's love and God's truth are greater than those things. And they compel us into the world to be reconciled to him and to one another. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that you would make us people who are reconciled to you and to one another. 
Lord, that we'd be agents of your reconciliation, that we'd love this campus, that we'd love people who are different from us, Lord, that we would pray for and love and forgive our enemies. Lord, we pray that, Lord, if there are people here who don't know you, that they would be reconciled to you. We pray that if there are people in our hearts that we need to be reconciled to, who we think of as enemies or who we avoid or who we go out of our way not to talk to or to see, who we curse under our breath and we feel like no one's watching, Lord, help us be reconciled to them. Lord, to not forgive is like to drink poison and to expect the other person to die. Lord, let us find life in you, forgiveness and love. And Lord, let us extend that to people around us because we know how much you've loved us. In your name we pray. Amen. Good afternoon.